Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Red Line, where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big issue shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. I want you to ask yourself a hypothetical question. What do you think is worse, a coup or a civil war? This is the debate I was having with one of the show's writers this week as we were putting together the data and script for this episode. Sitting there on a Zoom call, surrounded by a collection of scratched maps and ever-obscuring piles of notebooks across my desk, I turned to our researcher, whose name I will leave out of this story for obvious reasons, and asked, how much do you value democracy? What would you be willing to give up for it? The writer in question then paused, stared back at me, and stated, democracy is the best form of accountability for our politicians. In many ways, it's the only voice the average person has, and it must be defended. Yes, I value it very highly. Accepting the premise of the hypothetical, I asked, what if I promised you democracy for the very first time? But the military gets to keep the courts and the national defense and the direction of all the major agencies. Would you take that deal? Do you take the offer of democracy or do you stick with the military dictatorship? And her retort was very quick. Well, of course I'd take that. Some democracy is better than no democracy. And over time, we can improve the system until we reach full democracy. And now, much like a gambler winning their first hand at a poker table, I wanted to see how far they would be willing to go to hold on to it. So we moved to the next question in this hypothetical. What if the military started attacking certain ethnic groups? And when you approach them, they refuse to budge. And you know how powerful the military is. So your options are to either look the other way on the ethnic conflict and keep the democracy you have, or call it out and take a coin flip on whether you're removed from power in a military coup. This question was a bit harder for her to answer, as no one was to sign off on ethnic cleansing. But in the end, she responded, at least by maintaining some democracy, we can try and hold the military to account, even if it takes some time. And with a little more hesitancy, finalized her answer and picked democracy. So we moved to question three. So the military unleashes that coup anyway. There'll be no more democracy in your country. So now your options are to either accept the death of democracy in your country, or start a civil war, one that historically you know will likely splinter and become a nationwide bloodletting. Do you actively choose the policy of fighting your own countrymen, or do you doom another generation of your people to dictatorship? This is when she arrived at an impasse. There are no easy roads ahead. There was no way she was going to commit to either of those horrifying options. And as much as this was a hypothetical thought exercise between the two of us, this is sadly the exact situation the leaders of Myanmar are faced with today. After the Democratic Party's won in a landslide in the 2020 election, the military launched a coup to seize back power in Nebidor, Myanmar's capital. And this event, back in February of 2021, was the beginning of a now 19-month battle inside the country, with citizens from all across Myanmar fighting for their right to representation. And in that time, the fighting has got nastier, the country's economy has been sliced, and now the anti-government forces seem to be on the brink of transitioning from a battle against the dictatorship to an eight-way civil war with no discernible means of resolution. 
The collection of us who live in democracies often take it for granted and often forget that the price of democracy is high, but for many, it's a price worth paying. So let's take a look at Myanmar, its coup, the burgeoning civil war, and the creeping fears in the country that the conflict is beginning to become a proxy war between regional powers. And to take us through the history of how we got to this point, we turn to our first guest. Part 1. Detaining Democracy Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, the military has been uh, the most influential entity in Burmese politics uh, since the independence. More prominent uh, elements in the society after the independence where the military play crucial role to fight uh, the various insurgency outfits uh, across the country. Uh, in 1962, the military decided to launch a coup and set up the one-party state that lasted until 1988. In 1988, there was a mass uprising, a general mass uprising uh, that reject uh, the one-party state. So the military cracked it down. Uh, instead of opening up to the multi-party system, the election result was not implemented. Then the military rule was installed, and that lasted until 2010. And the military had a new constitution that allowed the military to sit in the parliament uh, 25% without being elected. There was an election. Most international observers uh, were condemned. It. And the, by the election, the, the military proxy party won the election. But this proxy party initiated a liberalization of the country towards uh, more democratizations and civil liberty and the peace process. So Myanmar enjoy a phase of uh, liberalizations and uh, progression from 2011 to 2021, February 1st. But all these years, the military remained uh, one of the most influential entities in Myanmar politics. Min Zhao is the executive director of the Myanmar Institute for Peace and Security, which implements research and analysis on security issues and the peace process in Myanmar. Min was also the advisor to the Peace Commission under the National League for Democracy, or NLD government, which was in place in Myanmar until the military coup of 2021. In addition to this, he's also an adjunct non-resident senior fellow at the Southeast Asia program at CSIS. And we're thrilled to have him on the program today. Uh, the military... Uh, draw they completed that constitution in 2008. So that constitution guarantees the military uh, to become a quite untouchable institution in Myanmar politics. Uh, not only does the military hold this 25% in the parliament, uh, the civilian government has little to intervene in the military's decision-making process. 
and the military also hold the majority of seats in the country's most influential entity called NDSC, National Defense and Security Council. And the military decision-making uh, is also quite independent from the civilian government. So the 2008 constitution pretty much enshrined the military to be uh, elite uh, institution and also uh, untouchable. So the military have the deck stacked. They have part of the parliament guaranteed to them, they have the courts, and they have control of the elections. But when they head to the polls in very late 2020, they lose, and they lose big. The military put up their candidate for the USDP, and against them was Aung San Suu Kyi, daughter of one of the founders of the nation. The party she leads, the NLDP, in this election wins big. They win 258 seats, as opposed to the military's 26. But to fill in some of the backstory around this, can you take us through who Aung San Suu Kyi is and why she was able to win such a commanding majority in the 2020 election? Uh, Aung San Suu Kyi came to popularity in 1988 mass uprising. So after that, she led the National League for Democracy and she was under house arrest. And, and later she was released for uh, just a year and then re-arrested again. During her house arrest, uh, she uh, refused to give up and let the opposition movement non-violently. And she is the most influential and also supported by the majority of the Myanmar population across the country. So that is something the military is concerned that her popularity will also increase the opposition. Throughout all those uh, years, uh, despite the military suppression on the National League for Democracy, uh, it turned out very strong when it was allowed to contest the election after 2010. So uh, the by-elections and the elections in 2015, the election in 2020, the NLD turned out to be the most vibrant and legitimate political party uh, supported by the majority of voters in Myanmar. So that the military sees uh, as the, uh, the number one uh, obstacles. So the NLD win the election and Myanmar seems to be traveling down a new path, one towards true democracy. Once in power, Aung San Suu Kyi makes proposals to reform some of the government systems, taking some of the powers away from the military and giving them back to the civilian governments. And seeing this, the military begin to panic. Then on February 1st, 2021, the military unleash a coup in Navidor and seize control of the government themselves, giving us that famous footage of the yoga instructor doing her lesson whilst a parade of black SUVs and other vehicles implement the opening stages of the coup. So what was the lying cross that made the military take the aggressive decision to overthrow the election and implement a coup themselves? Was there one particular decision that pulled the trigger on this? Uh, there, there are multiple reasons. Uh, uh, the number one reason was the the civil military relations between the NLD-led civilian government and the military eroded uh, since the very beginning of the uh, election victories by Aung San Suu Kyi's uh, NLD party. 
in 2015. This uh, erosion of the civil-military relation is largely linked to deteriorating relation between the commander-in-chief, senior general Men Aulain, and Do Aung San Suu Kyi herself. This uh, personal animosity also contributed uh, to the military coup. Uh, another reason was also the senior general's inspiration to remain in the leadership positions and to become the presidents of the country. Uh, there was also another reason. Uh, so all these uh, elements are coming into uh, more intense uh, confrontation between the military and the NLD. A triggering event was the elections. The military claimed that there were uh, irregular, irregularities and uh, there were uh, errors in voter registrations. Issue came out before the elections and after the election, which the NLD won landslide, the military kept promoting this issue, uh, but civilian government did not pay much attention. They just considered the military were just making simply noise to annoy the uh, annoy the civilian government. And, but that all came to the military coup on February 1st, because that was the day the, the first section of the parliament was scheduled to convene. Uh, the process will proceed to the forming of the new government as a result of the election. So that was the day the military launched a coup. And was the coup backed by a foreign power like China or the US, or was this a purely domestically driven movement? No, that was purely domestic. Uh, actually, China was also upset with the military coup because that styled up and destabilized the country, uh, which also hurts the interests of China. So now that the military have seized power, the military appoint their own General Min Aung Halang as leader of the country. He's been in power since February 2021. So how have his policies differed from those of the NLD? Uh, the main difference currently right now is the civil liberty. The uh, civil liberty eroded significantly and around 12,000 uh, people were incarcerated. I would say that about... 5,000 people, over 5,000 people have already killed by violence uh, that follow the coup. So the major main difference was the civil liberty and the country turned back 180 degrees uh, and reversed towards a more authoritarian regime. All elements of the policies reversed uh, because the regime is currently currently in the survivor mode. So just to survive, they will, you know, implement the policies, a quick fix uh, that could reverse uh, the status quo. Um, the country GDP now shrank to 18%. And uh, there was a significant capital flight. And the investment, the foreign investment stalled significantly as well. Since the coup, we've seen fighting and resistance throughout Myanmar. And many have already lost their lives in the struggle here. And we're going to talk a lot more about that with our other guests. For now, I want to focus a little bit more on domestic politics. The military are fighting with multiple groups at the moment, and things aren't looking good for them as we speak. But how unified do you think the opposition is? If the junta collapses tomorrow, 
Would the NLD step in? Would they rerun elections? Uh, would there be a more radical group that would come into power not having to compromise anymore? Can you take us through the state of the opposition movement in Myanmar at the moment? At this point, the, the NLD will be hesitant to join the elections uh, schedule next year, uh, August 2023, uh, because the NLD is calling for the recognition of the election results in 2020. Um, so when the, if the, there's election, very likely NLD may break out, break out the elections. And if it's a case, uh, the, the military proxy parties and some of the associate uh, may win the majority of seats uh, in the parliament. Uh, so that is the one scenario. Uh, what if, in case, you know, if the regime collapse, uh, that is another scenario. Uh, people talk about yeah, if the regime collapse, instead of uh, having uh, a transitional democracy, very likely uh, Myanmar will go into another phase of civil war. When we talk about the armed conflict, it is not just simply between the military hunter and the oppositions. There are also dozens of ethnic uh, armed organizations and militias. Uh, some of them have ceasefire with the military. Uh, some of them became the militia affiliated with the military. Uh, some of them are still fighting the military. And there were also a lot of internal fightings uh, among uh, these uh, armed groups as well. So the collapse of the regime were not necessarily install or transition uh, to another part of democracy, but uh, that could also be potentially uh, instability, uh, chronic instabilities, uh, another phase of chronic instabilities in, in Myanmar for more decades to come. And which direction do you see the country going over the next five to six years? Uh, majority of people in Myanmar are not interested about the elections promised by the regime in 2023 and the oppositions uh, the major opposition also will not accept the election result as well so Myanmar will remain instable and fragile uh, even there will be elections even there will be an elected government afterwards the security situations in Myanmar will remain challenging uh, for more decades uh, to come what Myanmar will need is a vibrant peace process that allow all stakeholders to involve, negotiate towards a more consolidated uh, political transition, not just simply the election held by the military government. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. 
Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The people of Myanmar were approaching some form of representative democracy, and when those freedoms were taken away in February of 2021, it became a do-or-die moment for the Burmese people. Either they protest now, or democracy may not return to the country for another generation. And so, the people did, protesting throughout the country. The fighting immediately became brutal, with the regime going as far as air-striking civilians and thousands going on to die in the conflict. And now we're 19 months on from this coup and 19 months of fighting. The economy's in tatters, the opposition is beginning to splinter, and the regime is entering an awful feedback loop. Burmese generals now worry about being convicted for their war crimes if they're removed from power, so they conduct more war crimes to stay in power, which in turn increases their rap sheet, which makes them more worried about being convicted when removed from power in an awful feedback loop. So where does this all lead? Is there hope for democracy to return to Myanmar? Well, to answer that, we'll turn to our second guest. Part 2. A Crumbling Coup Look, I'd honestly say Myanmar is probably one of the most beautiful cultures I've ever seen. It's it's rich in food, people, music, traditions, customs. And, and that's not just, I, I can't just say Myanmar. You've got uh, Shan area, you've got the kind of, some of the little pockets of cultures in the north, you've got the south. So it's a very expansive environment uh, and, and a super interesting place to be to be working in and to be looking at. Ben Strick is the Director of Investigations for Myanmar Witness and the director of the Centre for Information Resilience. He's also a former writer for Bellingcat and the BBC, and is producing some of the best on-the-ground reporting in Myanmar at the moment. And we're thrilled to have on the program today. I mean, it's a really interesting question and, and, and you know, kind of difficult to unpack. It, it, it depends on really what their kind of ambitions are, right? So we haven't been too clear on what the ambitions are. Um, obviously, it's to present or, or, or solidify some form of power within Myanmar. But quite interestingly enough, you know, and, and this is really harking back to the beginning of February and, and early days of March. Obviously, we saw protests on the streets, um, quite peaceful protests at that, you know, with, with heavy handed tactics of tear gas and, 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 and rubber bullets, uh, you know, sort of coming out. And then the, the heavier effects of uh, things like headshots, which we've documented many of, and these kinds of night raids and night arrests to instill that fear in the people. I think the sort of the interesting part of it really kicks in towards maybe the middle of last year or even even up towards latter part of last year where we start to see more retaliations um, and I'm talking about flashpoints such as in April and May where we saw entire police bases that really in, in areas that we've never seen this before in Myanmar, entire police bases and outposts overwhelmed by pro-democratic, anti-government militia forces. And so the coup, in, in a sense, while it's tried to be a sort of a force to stamp out uh, opposition, has actually kind of worked against the Tatmadaw um, or, or the SAC. 
in, in the sense that now ranks are just absolutely climbing for the PDF, um, for other anti-government militia, especially in the north. More training camps are popping up in the north. A lot of the youth from areas like Yangon, uh, Mandalay have, have gone to those training camps. And so what we're seeing is a much sort of marginalized buildup of uh, anti-government militia, which is, which is quite a sort of indirect effect of, of that coup um, and, and probably something that they weren't expecting would actually happen uh, and, and sort of puts this into the place that we are now, at now, which is not just pro-democratic protests. We're, we're essentially looking at, at what is a, a civil war, especially in Myanmar's north. So you've been reporting on the fighting in Myanmar for a while now. The military junta has guns and planes and tanks. So how are the Burmese citizens fighting back against that? Look, it's a, <laughs> that, that is a really good question. Um, I think it comes with scale as well. So obviously we, we started to see, um, at the start, we really started to see, uh, I guess, low level minor infantry tactics. So there would be organized raids, kind of shoot and scoot exercises by uh, uh, PDF and, and other groups like that. They would pop up, they would uh, have a small skirmish or an exchange with, with Tatmadaw forces uh, and then would flee. The, the interesting thing about some of those, and we really started to notice a lot of these around the kind of Chin, Mugwai, Sagaing areas, so very much in the north. We, we noticed a lot of these from probably August to September onwards last year. But the interesting effect of those and, and, and you know, sort of skirting away from your question, but an important point to mention is the retaliatory effect of what the Tatmadaw do after those skirmishes is that often they'll uh, respond with a, a 10 times the amount of, of power. And at the end of the day, the impact is felt on civilian communities. Uh, and, and I can give a couple of examples where this has happened in, for example, Chin State, um, or, or especially Sagaing as well, where skirmishes have been, have been held around uh, specific areas. And then in the next few weeks, we've noticed entire villages have been burnt to the ground. Um, and that just really goes to show the, the kind of, I guess, danger that, that the PDF uh, sometimes presents in some of these skirmishes and, and is obviously a tactical, you know, a tactical decision for them to take is that is, is knowing the, the impact that will, that will be waged back on civilians um, should that happen. And just to sort of quantify for that, you know, to, to zoom out from that sort of qualitative analysis, uh, to quantify that, I mean, we, we've been watching these fires and documenting them through satellite imagery and footage from the ground. And I, I mentioned August being um, a, a sort of flashpoint last year. Since August last year up till September this year, We've documented 263 of those incidents. Now that's just ones available to us by scouting around on, on satellite imagery and by looking at footage from the ground. Um, and even last month uh, in, in, in August alone, we identified 21 of those inf incidents where either villages or, or buildings in villages had been, had been essentially burnt to the ground many of which have been a result of nearby clashes or, or, or those villages being accused of supporting uh, anti-government forces, which is a really interesting aspect. Is the resistance against the Tatmadaw or military regime uniform across the entire country or is it more concentrated in some places than others? Are we beginning to see the beginning of a drawing of front lines? 
Look, I think there's a there's a general sort of vein of civil disobedience throughout the country, um, and, and obviously, obviously that goes because you know Burmese are kind of one and united, um, especially in this sense. Um, however, we have noticed, and, and in saying that one and united, that's definitely not the case because we have noticed um, there are pro-government forces, pro-government militia, and pro-government civilian organisations stepping up um, as well, which kind of draws a line down in the sand between between um, civilians, which is is quite an interesting aspect. So it's not just uniforms and civilians. I, I think looking at the kind of the front line that we've identified really happens in the north. Now that's not to say that. Uh, the city areas and, and you know, in the beginning of the conflict, the city areas were quite important, especially for um, primarily young people attending protests, getting picked up off the streets, being shot at, um, as well as those night raids happening where, where the, the junta was able to instill fear into individuals through those kind of night snatches and just running into people's homes and snatching them out. We've seen probably as of sort of June, July, we really started to see that that conflict uh, really solidify itself in the north. And that's the kind of interesting aspect of this kind of front line. We don't really have much um, or, or we haven't noticed as much happening in the south or around the city areas as what we have in the north. And that's probably our, our biggest focus, um, especially if we look at things like uh, the five-point consensus um, that, that was sort of drawn up by ASEAN in, in April last year. And if we sort of have a look at that five-point consensus, the first point, which is kind of the strongest point for us, is first, there shall be an immediate cessation of violence in Myanmar and all parties shall exercise utmost restraint. That kind of first point is, is the biggest sticking point for us because of what's happening in the north. As you mentioned, we're seeing airstrikes. So um, we, we've documented a number of airstrikes around Demoso, Loikor, Mobile. So that kind of triangular period right there or, or area right there. Um, and these airstrikes are not just targeting anti-government militia. These are targeting homes and, and, and civilian areas. We, we just released a, a report last week documenting an attack that uh, saw a 10-year-old boy have both of his legs um, essentially blown off by stray mortar shelling in, in, in a village um, in, in the northwest as well. So a lot of these kinds of human rights abuses, we could call them, or interferences with human rights until they're trialled, have really been happening in the north as a result of that kind of warlike scenario that we would be seeing uh, in, in other conflicts um, around the world. So for us, our sort of our, our real focus point has been in the north just because of the amount of, uh, I guess you could call them atrocities, but also um, almost uniform on uniform conflict with the, the PDF militia really upping their forces, um, gaining new arms, launching attacks on, on the Tatmadaw and, and the, the, the junta or the Tatmadaw responding, as I mentioned before, uh, with that sort of huge amount of strength um, in, in targeting those villages. The fighting year hasn't been unseen by global actors, and many, including the United States, have imposed sanctions on the military junta. But many analysts are explaining that these sanctions have been pretty ineffective. As an example, the financial sanctions don't work as the junta leadership keep their money in Chinese, Singapore, and British bank accounts, and no one's willing to sanction those guys. And even when it comes to the basic sanctions, like implementing an arms embargo against Myanmar, well, that hasn't been particularly effective either, as Myanmar shares a direct border with China, so they can purchase arms across that border. 
and even when it comes to their main arms exporter, Russia, there is no effective mechanism for these sanctions to be implemented if Russian ships simply dock in Myanmar ports. Have these sanctions actually made any effect on the ground as is, and do you think there might be a more effective way of sanctioning the government to prevent this conflict going the way it is? Oh, that's such a good question, you know, and, and with Myanmar, it's, it's quite interesting. So I, I do think there are, for the portfolios of specific governments, the people within those portfolios do care and, and, and are trying. Um, and and I, I think there's a, there's a sort of number of examples that we can look at around the kind of targeted sanctions, for example. So having a look at uh, relationships um, with the, the, the junta and specifically MEHL and organizations like that, that the junta has set up so long ago and has such deep financial veins to be able to grow their sort of pockets. It's been running for a long time. They're very good at evading detection. Uh, so I, I think there's a sort of number of aspects to look at there, which a lot of work has been done to, to try to sever some of that, that income into the Myanmar military, but also stopping the flow of arms. So evidently, uh, you know, as, as you mentioned, China, um, Russia as well. I mean, we, we've documented a number of uh, visits by Russia. Uh, I, I think that there have been more than 10 over, over the past year alone, um, both flights from Myanmar to Russia for learning trips, uh, weapons shopping trips and things like that, and vice versa from uh, the, the Kremlin representatives to Myanmar to solidify that relationship. Because obviously in the bigger picture of things, the Kremlin is looking for financial relationships in the world. Uh, Myanmar seems to be one. Um, but I think also just monitoring other areas as well of the world where Myanmar might be looking to uh, either make friends or, or just buy supplies. Um, and, 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 you know, one, one of the interesting aspects that we sort of looked at last year uh, was around Serbia um, signing off uh, uh, the shipment of rockets into Myanmar to be used by the old big Soviet gunship helicopters uh, that were that were flying around Myanmar's north. Um, evidently, that that sort of uh, got Serbia into a bit of trouble, and they had to sort of say, "Yes, we'll agree not to send uh, arms into Myanmar anymore." Um, that was only immediately uh, after the coup, and they haven't done any more since. So I guess that sort of international community and, and the role that the media plays as well, uh, you know, not just talking about policy and governments and sanctions, but the role that the media plays has been quite crucial in, in reinforcing some of these sanctions so that now companies can sort of take it upon their own to say, well, you know, Myanmar, there are some serious things going on in there and, and should our products be going into Myanmar or should our services be going? In? It's not to say that uh, all of the sanctions have been carried out. It's not to say that all of the organizations that are dealing with Myanmar have stopped. Um, there obviously are some that have prioritized financial relationships over, over ethics, uh, but, but hopefully further reporting um, from international news organizations as well as local news organizations can, can apply a bit of pressure uh, internally upon the directors of some of those companies to you know, give them a, a little bit more ethical-minded guide sets as to where who is being is ending up as the victim of, of some of those uh, resources and some of the dollars uh, being pumped into Myanmar. So how is the country functioning on a day-to-day -day basis under this regime? The reports we have in front of us indicate that most of the trains are down, the power is spotty at best, the internet is throttled, and supplies are nowhere near as easy to acquire as they were pre-coup. So how is the issue handling the day-to-day -day governing that Myanmar needs? 
So for many of us that are monitoring the situation from the outside, the, the economy, you know, a, a lot of the sort of things that we get is either through local journalism, which is completely different to what the government will say. I think the economy is, is interesting to look at for the city areas. And something that we've, we've noticed um, for, for specific city areas is that kind of focus or, or, or sorry, change in prioritization for specific areas like those urban areas. And, and we can have a look at something, for example, like crime related issues. Um, now, if we have a look at statistics of crime, uh, it's heavily increasing in, in, in you know, places like Yangon um, and, and specific neighborhoods as well. Now that may be due to the re uh, the, the prioritization of local police to crack down on, uh, for example, uh, anti-government groups, journalists, media. Um, you know, so using the kind of police to practice censorship through the long arm of the government. Obviously, trade is limited now, um, especially since you know what what's been happening uh, over the past year. The sanctions are starting to feel an impact. You have inflation as well. Um, it really sort of sets a bit of a sort of, uh, you know, tough turning point and tough future for what the government is actually going to start operating under. And I dare say that's probably um, something that would impact uh, some thought processes down the line as well as to how far do we go before we start to consider maybe pulling out or maybe making concessions and actually coming through with these concessions. What do you think it would take for the junta to hand power back to the civilian administration if they were to, let's say, return to the pre-coup constitution and guarantee there'd be no convictions of war crimes? Would that be enough to convince the junta to hand power back to a civilian administration? Or frankly, they're in too deep and now it's do or die. You know, that's such a tough question um, and it's something we, we all often think about. You know, it's, it's, it's always that down the road mentality of what, what next. Um, we, we try to sort of, you know, I, I identify clues, but, but sadly what we, what we see a lot is this kind of reinforcement mentality. I'll give you, I'll give you a few sort of examples. So uh, in, in state media and state press, we, we see a lot of examples of this kind of division um, so for Myanmar Witness, we, we've been we've been targeted in the past, saying that it's a it's this kind of the West against us for for the junta mentality, and that that kind of ideology just further reinforces and retrenches their their position as them versus the rest of the world. Um, we're not seeing a slowdown of attacks as well, you know, and 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 I go back to sort of mentioning the amount of, of burnt villages, which for us is kind of, is, is not just about satellite imagery and, 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 and burning villages and conflict analysis. It also goes so much further to show that kind of mentality of the Tatmadaw. I mean, if we have a look back at that kind of activity from, from April, May, right up to sort of September and October, we've seen some villages that have been targeted uh, more than 20 times. Um, with with fire and, and and you know attacks by the Tatmadaw, we've seen airstrikes in the north and and this kind of overflexing and and attempt to just pummel people into submission that has not worked, uh, and and it, it's absolutely in fact reinforced to the other side to the point where anti-government militia groups are more funded, more armed, 
more powered and more manned. So that tactic is not working for the Tatmador. But still fast forward to this year and we're seeing more villages burnt down, clearance operations still ongoing in Myanmar's north. Uh, we're seeing more airstrikes and more military operations throughout the north without any kind of change of those tactics or the, the we, we were not we we're just not seeing that kind of uh, strategic let's go back to the drawing board and reassess because it's just not working attitude um, and we're not seeing that through the evidence and and I think that's an interesting point because that sort of shows us that there's this kind of narrow-mindedness to and, and and it's obviously been like that for a while rule by the end of end of a, a gun um, essentially for these this uh, you know for, for the Tatmadaw and and flexing that power through guns and bullets and death obviously it hasn't been working uh, as of you know up until the end of this year uh, uh, last year and it hasn't it, it's definitely re it's continued and still not worked this year um, so I think that's a kind of indication of, of where things are going, that either we have two options, we'll either see a continuation of those, those human rights abuses um, and those, those sort of heinous acts in the north and that essentially a war uh, on, on, on anti-government groups in the north, or we're going to see them go, go back to the drawing board and, and, and reassess how that's looking. My sort of take on it is that we might start to see maybe cripples in command levels uh, once these sorts of, and, and, you know, reverting back to that other question you asked, the, the sanctions, the financial stress that Myanmar will start to feel, eventually we might start to see ranks cripple or uh, command structures maybe question that, that kind of narrow-minded uh, or, or, or that, that severe push um, towards more action. Uh, so I think those are the kind of two options we, we might be looking at. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. For a government so confident after the coup, the situation on the ground isn't looking great for the junta. They have minimal support from the population, the economy is in freefall, and Myanmar is certainly not the most affluent nation in the world when it comes to natural resources. So what is keeping the government afloat? Which nations have become invested in the survival or downfall of the Tatmadaw regime? Well, to answer that, we turn to our third guest. Part 3. A Restrained Referendum 
the military is smaller than now than people had thought it was or it was before in the past because they've had so much defections. They weren't able to get a full class of new recruits at their military academy. So that's one thing. They have just less people. They have arms, but less arms than they did in the past because they've used a lot of them. And they have almost no hard currency, so they're only probably able to get access arms from Russia and North Korea. In the past, they fought against ethnic minority armies in different parts of the country. And so they were taking the battle basically to those opposition groups' domain. And sometimes they would do well, sometimes they wouldn't. Now that it's been combined between those ethnic minority groups and people who are of the majority Burman group who have fled the cities and have created their own guerrilla organizations. And they're taking the fight to the military in the military's strongholds. So now the military is not only just going around to these ethnic minority areas, fighting them and also committing atrocities like, you know, just bombing villages and committing genocide, etc. They ha- They are a target now in their own more comfortable areas. Military officers are being assassinated with, you know, in big cities. They're being assassinated near military compounds. The guerrillas are fighting in urban warfare in cities that the military had con- had sort of considered under completely under their control. Um, the guerrillas next year could seriously threaten to take control of some major cities. Joshua Kalanzik is a senior fellow for Southeast Asia policy at the Council of Foreign Relations, with a specialty in Southeast Asian politics and economics, as well as China's relations within Southeast Asia, including Chinese investment, aid, and diplomacy. Previously, he was also a fellow at the University of Southern California in the Center for Public Diplomacy and a fellow at the Pacific Council on International Policy, and we're thrilled to have him back on the show today. So the military is now, instead of fighting a essentially a one-front war where they attacked ethnic armed organizations. They're fighting on the defensive, too. Fewer men, less arms, and morale is, is horrible. And the guerrillas are also attacking individual, you know, officers throughout in the field, individual soldiers, even of lower rank, and trying to convince them, using these assassinations to convince others to defect. There, there, there's a tactic also being used on social media by a lot of the opposition groups of pointing out, essentially, and I'm not endorsing this, but pointing out the names and locations of various middle-level soldiers and officers um, as a threat. And the military was has never been threatened like this before. So they're sort of stuck, like, that... They are definitely much weaker, and the guerrillas have made a lot of progress, but the, the guerrillas aren't going to be able to come out into an open battle war, war field um, in the central plains of Myanmar or take over Yangon anytime soon. So they're stuck in this terrible civil war, and the state apparatus has completely collapsed. So where does China come down on this issue? Is there a particular side of this conflict that China would prefer to back? Well, there was never full democracy because the military controlled most of the important ministries, even when Suchi's government was in charge. But certainly that was a better situation for China because Suchi's government dealt easily with China and was perfectly happy to allow in plenty of Chinese investment and me- investment in mega projects 
and there wasn't threats. There was protest, but there wasn't, you know, armed guerrillas blowing up those mega projects and things like that. So certainly the situation before the coup was much better for China. Um, they're not going to come out right out, at least not at this point, and call for the junta to step down simply because it's just never been China's policy to do that. They've never even done that with North Korea, which is an even more, uh, you know, atrocious regime. Um, there was at points that China has sent envoys. This was earlier when there was still sort of a peaceful, nonviolent movement against the junta to try to mediate between the two and make some space for dialogue. That nonviolent movement has kind of collapsed. And now that it's just all out war, and remember, China is also distracted by a lot of very other important things to to it, including one, its party Congress, two, its zero COVID strategy, which is completely disastrous for them and is sparking unrest at a time when they're planning their party Congress, three, the the how to handle Russia, and four, the ongoing conflict or at least tension in the Taiwan Strait. You know, I think they would certainly love to go back to the pre-coup situation, but they've sort of given up in a way. There's no one to negotiate with on the guerrilla side, really, even if someone wanted to negotiate, which they don't. The junta may try to hold a sham, kind of a sham election next year and create a sham parliament. I'm sure China will endorse that, but it won't mean anything because they, the war will go on. Obviously, the US and a few other countries have put sanctions on the junta at the moment to try and hamper them economically. But do you think these sanctions have been effective in any way? There is an increasing shortage of hard currency in the country, and that includes for the generals too. As far as the sanctions, I mean, the, the, the sanctions are the, might have some utility at the margin. But if you have a regime that's basically like, if you have a failed state and everyone's just out to kill each other and the military doesn't care if they burn the country to the ground while doing it. So even if the military was to lose, but were that to happen, were they to retreat, were they to lose some major towns, et cetera, they would probably destroy the towns. They're willing to burn the country to the ground before they give it up. So in a situation like that, what external measures are even feasible like, to have an effect? The military is not really interested in negotiating and neither are the guerrillas. The military is willing to burn the country to the ground if it has to, to try to stay into control. And the guerrillas feel, they feel that time is on their side. And, you know, they're tired, but that they are wearing the military down and killing top officers and scaring them and the military is losing men. And so I'm not sure what external action other than some sort of armed intervention, which isn't going to happen. It's not, there's no feasible way that's happening, would do anything. So we're now seeing a number of distinct players emerging in this conflict. So let's go through some of the major ones. Obviously, vastly oversimplifying. First, we have the military junta, with the backing of the police and a handful of different ethnic armies, particularly in the south. We have the NUG, or National Unity Government, a coalition of different forces in the country, including the People's Defence Force and the Chin State National Defence Force. 
This group is much more radical than the previous government and runs a lot of the rallies and support events overseas. So if you've had a march in your city, it was probably run by the NUG. There's the Communist Party of Burma also pushing back against the junta. There are also a whole bunch of other ethnic groups with separate armies all trying to stake their place in this country. And on top of that, we also have the forces loyal to the previous government and the NLD, Aung San Suu Kyi's party, with this group pushing for everyone to simply recognize the results of the overturned 2020 elections. And yes, whilst they are anti-military, they also worked within the bounds of the system laid out by the military. And so many believe they aren't radical enough and become the compromise group with the military. But in summary, all of these anti-Tatmadaw forces are happy to throw little punches at each other for now and save the big ones for the Tatmadaw themselves. But if the Hunter were to actually collapse, are we likely to see all these groups turn on one another very quickly in order to secure their hard-won gains? No one's prepared to step in right now. I think the NUG has... One of the few good things that has happened since the coup is that the majority people... The people of the majority um, Burman group in the opposition have realized Myanmar has to, if it's going to survive, has to be a more federalized state. And so um, that is a significant change because in the past, even the Suchi and other Burman ethnic majority Democrats weren't really that interested in a federal state, one in which uh, uh, federal country, one in which different states, many of them dominated by certain ethnic minorities, had a lot of power. So that has been one positive. They they have really recognized in the opposition that Myanmar needs in the future, if there's ever going to be a future, to be a, a federal state and have worked more closely together with the ethnic minorities, um, including the Rohingya who Suchi basically dismissed and in fact went to the uh, international court in The Hague to, to, to defend the military's genocide of them. Were the Junta to disappear, I mean, I don't think, I think you would have a lot of, you would have a power struggle, but it's possible that you could have some setup where the NUG convinced the ethnic armed organizations to join a, a truly federal Myanmar where states had a lot of power and to lay down their weapon, most of them at least, to lay down their weapons. I think at this point that would not involve Suchi. Suchi has sort of put herself out of the picture. Just her sort of archaic views on ethnic minorities before the coup, etc. And she's not participating in exile government because she's in jail. Other figures have come forward. We don't have time to go into the entire story surrounding the Rohingya this week, and it is such a complex situation that it really does deserve its own full piece. So we'll be getting to that at some point in the future. But for now, focusing more on the coup and Myanmar's current state, we'll quickly rush through the story of the Rohingya. The Rohingya are an ethnic group in the west of the country near the border between Myanmar and Bangladesh, who were being attacked and killed in large numbers by the Burmese government. It is one of the major criticisms of Aung San Suu Kyi's government that they did not stop or crack down or condemn these killings. But to play devil's advocate here, whilst yes, Aung San Suu Kyi did appear in the Hague to defend the Burmese military's killing of the Rohingya, did she have much choice? If she'd gone against the military back then, she would have lost the support of a number of other ethnic groups, as well as open up a schism between herself 
and the military who effectively run the country. And all it would have done is simply bring about a coup during her first term rather than after the landslide 2020 election. Again, giving the other side here for balance. So what are your thoughts on that particular statement? Well, I mean, I don't know. That's an impossible question. But I mean, it's bizarre that she went and spent decades in, j- in jail or house arrest to defy the military. Ultimately, it, it, didn't, it didn't gain her anything. It only lost her. And it was a factor in sort of alienating her from the political system as well, to the point that even if she was let out of jail now, and the junta disappeared. I don't. I don't think she would be a major factor on the political scene anymore. But morally, it just going to the Hague was the wrong thing to do, and it didn't get her anything politically either. With this current fracturing situation unfolding, where do you see Myanmar in five years' time? I would like to say that I would see a situation in which the continued pressure, combined with some rationality by the junta continue pressure by the movements against the junta and some rationality by the junta leads to the junta stepping down or or just losing although i think it's very hard to imagine you know stranger things have happened um or at least recognizing their weakness and coming to some agreement where the military is allowed to survive but is put under civilian control and a real democracy can be built. Um, I don't think that's very likely. I think more likely is years and years of state collapse and where most of the world doesn't pay much attention. It's a fairly common situation in history, whether it be the Chinese Civil War or the Allies during World War II, when there's a mutual enemy to fight The people can put their differences aside, but when the war ends, they almost inevitably turn on each other. When it comes to Myanmar though, a number of these signs are already beginning to plan for the next phase of the civil war, turning to players like India, China, Russia and the US for support to back them in the next, far more bloody phase of the civil war. But who is answering the call? And are we likely to see a major power player emerging already? Well, to answer that, we turn to our final guest. Part 4. A Policy of Scorched Worth So yeah, I'd say Myanmar presently faces an unmitigated disaster, um, which represents a growing threat for both regional stability and security, but more importantly for its own population. Uh, 20 months since the military... Uh, launched a uh, military coup in February 2021. You've now seen over a million people displaced by the military's ongoing crackdown. And you're seeing civil war raging across the country as more and more people have taken up arms to defend themselves um, in the face of the military's growing brutality. The economy is in freefall with now over 25% of the population facing serious food insecurity. And the military continues to make things worse by using more and more extreme violence against the people. You've seen now over 28,000 houses burnt down, entire villages destroyed in multiple states across the country, nearly 25,000 civilians killed, and another 15,000 taken out as political prisoners, with the military also increasingly executing um, the political prisoners that it's taken. Jason Tower is the country director for the Burma program at the United States Institute for Peace. 
prior to the USIP, Tao also served in senior positions with several peacebuilding organizations in China and Southeast Asia. He's also worked to establish the Beijing Office of American Friends Service Committee and initiated programming across North and Southeast Asia, focusing on the impacts of cross-border investments and conflict dynamics. And we're thrilled to have on the program today. Um, war is ravaging in seven different theaters across the country, both with some of the country's traditional ethnic armed organizations, as well as with the People's Defense Forces that have been established across the country, uh, with many of these defense forces coming under the leadership of the National Unity Government, which was formed by the deposed uh, elected lawmakers after the coup. Internationally, the coup has meant serious costs for all of Myanmar's neighbors. It's posing a growing security threat, both to the immediate neighbors as well as to regional institutions, including ASEAN, which has struggled to mount any form of meaningful response to the regional crisis. Um, despite all of the displacements, the violence spilling across the border, uh, the growing impact of transnational crime, uh, um, in, in Burma and some of the implications there for neighboring countries, you really haven't seen the international spot response be able to effectively make headway against any of these problems. While the US, the UK, Australia, and the EU have all denounced the coup and pledged support for democracy, um, powerful regional actors, including China and Russia, have openly provided political, economic, and military support to the junta. You also have very deep divisions in ASEAN, which are exacerbated by China's influence there. They're really derailing any efforts to identify a solution. So I'd say on the whole, Western support for the pro-democracy actors has largely been offset by Russian, Chinese, and in some case, Indian support for the military, leaving us really with a, a complete disaster situation right in the heart of um, the Indo-Pacific. In the days following the February coup, China referred to the coup as a major cabinet reshuffle. But how does China view the coup today? Are they supportive of the Tatmadaw, or are they hoping to get back to some stability in Myanmar? Yeah, I think uh, on, on this question, certainly the Chinese government was not pleased to see the coup and the growing violence in, in Burma. China has invested deeply in building out a series of infrastructure and connectivity projects that aim to ultimately harness the Myanmar economy to that of China's southwest. Uh, giving it access to the Indian Ocean, uh, enhancing this energy security of, of China's Southwest, and really building out the infrastructure necessary to connect a large industrial zone up in the border area, the China-Myanmar border area, to the Indian Ocean, which gives China another outlet for, for trade. So for there to be instability in Burma is something that, you know, increasingly represents a national security threat to the Chinese. And also it means, you know, prospects of instability along one of its longest borders, uh, China and Myanmar sharing roughly a 2000 kilometer border. Following the, the coup, uh, China initially seemed to be doing a bit of hedging. So it did maintain some interactions with the uh, NLD party after the coup. It also interacted a little bit with the NUG, more at a lower level through the, the Chinese embassy. Um, but this engagement has gradually been phased out, I think, particularly after China saw that the NLD party and the NUG both were quite intent on you know, advancing what the Chinese might perceive as more of a revolution against um, the, uh, the military 
military aiming to really bring down the, the junta's uh, regime. And I think that China sees that and sees the prospects of pro-democracy actors trying to defeat the junta as, as quite uh, threatening to its interests um, in, in Burma. China is also very much concerned about Western influence in, in Myanmar, which is something that it's long been concerned about. And it has, you know, really, I think, particularly in the Myanmar border area in the past, tried to put pressure on a lot of the ethnic armed organizations that occupy the border area uh, to prevent them from having engagement from Western actors. But also following the coup, I think that there's a range of uh, Chinese policy pundits and experts who who've been trying to parrot a lot of the military junta's narratives about the opposition, claiming that opposition actors are often uh, Western proxies or really taking away agency from a lot of those actors, which I think is unfortunate. At the end of the day, though, I think when China looks at the situation, it's looking at the situation from um, a quite pragmatic and not ideological type of, of vantage point. So it certainly wants to keep Western influence to a minimum. And I think it now sees that the SAC, the, the, the junta's uh, representation, um, is kind of cornered. It really doesn't have any other options than to uh, do China's bidding economically and to align very closely with the Chinese politically, economically, and militarily. And so China's really, I think, offering a bit of a trade-off. If the military is willing to go fully in with the China-Myanmar economic corridor, if it's able to move a lot of the projects that China has in the pipeline and to make significant progress on those projects, then China is going to continue to take steps to give it that uh, ongoing uh, political legitimacy uh, and to support it vis-a-vis its adversaries. If the junta pushes back, however, or if China sees that the junta is just not capable of moving those projects ahead, it also maintains close relations with some of the most powerful of the ethnic armed organizations, all of whom are gaining significant ground um, following the coup. And I think China has a lot of cards that it could play to try to influence the overall trajectory of the conflict and to influence the behavior of both the, um, the military as well as the EAOs. So I'd say in some that really what China's most focused on is trying to create conditions that enable it to move forward with its economic projects as quickly as possible and to limit um, Western influence in its border areas as much as possible. You mentioned India a little while back, which Myanmar shares a very long border with India and Bangladesh in the West, and neither Dhaka nor New Delhi are wanting to see a large influx of Burmese fleeing over the border to escape an escalating conflict. So where do India and Bangladesh stand on this fighting, and what are they hoping to see emerge from this situation? Yeah, no, I, I don't think that India is particularly happy with the junta. I think one of the key considerations, though, is that India is really looking at some of China's moves. And so India sees that China... China is moving ahead full speed now with a lot of the economic projects with the junta. It sees that it's uh, giving the junta uh, diplomatic legitimacy, that it's pulling some of its China-led um, regional platforms um, to come behind the junta and give more legitimacy, support and recognition to the junta. And it also sees both China and Russia giving uh, differing levels of military support to uh, um, the junta as well. So I think from India's vantage point, that is a major uh, concern. It doesn't want to see 
uh, any central Burman authorities that are closely aligned with China, with which it doesn't have a good relationship, with which it doesn't maintain ties, um, that would enable it to, to hedge against China, to check kind of China's influence there. So I think the nightmare situation for India is one where it throws its lot in with the democratic forces, but then it sees China, you know, gaining more and more influence with the military, maybe China moving on its economic projects in a way that puts India at a disadvantage. And so unfortunately, I think in this case, um, the junta has been able to kind of play India and China off of one another, which I think is unfortunate for, for India, which otherwise could be, I think, doing a lot more to um, support some of the resistance actors in a way that would also enhance its own national security interests. The other thing that India is looking at very closely here, of course, is some of its own challenges with uh, insurgents and with separatist groups in its northeast. And where, you know, India has seen some of these groups following the coup, you know, continue to grow in terms of their, their, their strength and their ability to operate. And, you know, so I think often India is looking at these issues through, you know, challenges to uh, its security in the Northeast and really looking to try to bring central Burman authorities in to try to help it deal with some of these security challenges. Unlike uh, China, I think India has done quite a lot less in terms of maintaining strong ties with some of the ethnic armed organizations. But I think one thing that we're now starting to see, particularly as India sees much more clearly that in a lot of the border areas, particularly in Rakhine State and Chin State, the military just no longer has influence there on the ground. It's not going to be in any way an effective strategic partner in terms of dealing with any security threats that might be there in the border area. And so I think increasingly, as some of the ethnic armed organizations, such as the Arakan Army, as some of the uh, aligned um, uh, People's Defense Forces up in Chin states, as uh, the Chin Defense Force and other new uh, armed actors that are emerging along with the CNF up in, in Chin state continue to grow in terms of their strength that you may see India increasingly start to build closer connections with and align more with these actors. And I think the same goes also for the national unity government where India may have a little bit more willingness, I think, to engage strategically there and build some ties there, noting also that, that it's going to continue to look at some of China's own moves. ASEAN, or the Organization of Southeast Asian Nations, has had certain members condemn the coup, whether it be the Malaysian foreign minister, for instance. But ASEAN as an organization hasn't gone that far after Myanmar. Can you explain why? Yeah, I mean, I think with ASEAN, you know, there was an effort uh, immediately after the coup to negotiate this five-point consensus, which was supposed to serve as a, a roadmap to uh, address the crisis. And, and frankly speaking, I mean, the military opted out of or completely, I'd say completely rejected that five point consensus. It was dead on arrival. The military never really, I think, came around to committing to that. And so now 18 months in, you still have some ASEAN states parroting the importance of a five point consensus that really never existed. And I think that's why you're seeing uh, on the part of some ASEAN states growing levels of frustration because the coup is frankly imposing costs on ASEAN countries well, it's damaging ASEAN's reputation and it's damaging ASEAN's partnerships with 
other key states, you know, the, the uh, U.S.-ASEAN partnership, the ASEAN-EU partnership, even I'd say to some extent the China-ASEAN partnership, all of these have higher levels of tensions as a result of the, the Burma issue. Um, and the Burma issue is, I think, really going to be a cloud over any ASEAN interactions with other stakeholders uh, looking ahead if it can't find a way to address these issues. Um, so, you know, now one thing that ASEAN probably could do in terms of trying to address this issue is um, really to look towards how it can start directly and publicly engaging with um, the national unity government and with uh, some of the ethnic uh, organizations that are controlling significant territory and providing governance um, in different parts of the country, you know, meeting with these actors, engaging more with these actors like Malaysia has done would be, I think, one important way of, of building the types of relationships needed to address the crisis. And then also really delinking the issue from ASEAN centrality, I think, is another important step that could be taken um, to try to help ASEAN. Uh, you know, really uh, look to some of the key players that are uh, much more equally important in addressing the crisis. So again, uh, China and Russia moving in one direction um, with most Western states moving in another direction. That makes it really difficult, I think, for ASEAN to have much, much impact here. So really, I think looking at other platforms outside of ASEAN that might play a little bit more of a role in addressing some of these challenges. The junta has stated that they will run an election in Myanmar in August 2023. Do you think this election is likely to go ahead? And if it does, is this a path out of the crisis? Or frankly, it'll be a sham election and no one will actually recognize it. Well, I, I would just back up here for a moment to say that there will not be any form of free or fair election held in Burma under the military. The military has zero legitimacy. It's lost the ability to administer um, vast parts of the country um, by, by uh, one count. The military actually is able to maintain administrative capacities in only around 17 percent of the territories across the country. So, I mean, its ability to organize any form of election is going to be extremely limited. Um, so any election that would be held is going to be a total sham. And it's only going to be something that prompts an escalation of violence, uh, that prompts uh, probably, you know, uh, there being significant violence deployed by the military trying to force people to polls, and then significant violence being deployed by PDFs defending those uh, stakeholders who, um, and members of the population who resoundly do not want to participate in a military-led sham election that does not allow the free participation of the country's most popular political parties. Um, so I think that's the first thing to recognize is that there simply will not be um, any opportunity for there to be free and fair elections under the military and that the military has no legitimacy to be organizing such elections. I think then the question becomes, you know, one of, first of all, are there steps that can be effectively taken on the part of national actors to try to prevent um, the military from organizing those, those elections? This could be done through, you know, efforts to really do more campaigning and outreach, you know, developing more articulated strategies on how to prevent violence around the Junta's efforts to uh, organize sham elections. There are a number of possible endings to this crisis at the moment, but which one do you think is the most likely to actually happen? Looking, and again, uh, there's, there's a lot of variables at play here. I don't want to claim to have a crystal ball by any means, but 
you know, certainly I'm seeing one factor is that even with the support coming from Russia and from China, the military is losing significantly on the battlefield. Um, this is both in terms of the number of troops that it's lost, in terms of, you know, just atrocious levels of morale, uh, in terms of the sheer number of posts that it's losing across the country. I mean, you're seeing very significant gains being made in the north, in uh, Kachin and in Shan states by powerful EAOs. Uh, in Chin states. Most recently, you're starting to see the Arakan army in Rakhine really rout the military, um, taking a series of, of more than a dozen posts in just the last couple of days alone, but also significant defections now coming from the military in Rakhine state as the Arakan army is, is quite popular there and uh, has also really built up a lot of, of, of battlefield capacities. Similar things happening, you know, on the Thai border and the Karen areas and the Kareni areas. So say one important thing that we're seeing here is that the uh, current situation really is not sustainable for the military. It's, it's going to continue to lose ground. It doesn't have the capacity to fight battles on all these different fronts. And it's really going to have to give up more and more, I think, in order to be able to sustain itself. Uh, I think we're also likely to see much greater levels of, of violence. Um, you know, the military is certainly not going to move away. While at the lower level, there may be low morale. Um, the direction of the military leaders is in no way going to be to suddenly uh, give up power. There really is no place to to back down. There's no exit strategy yet for the military. So I, I would project that you're going to see it use higher and higher levels of, of violence and that, uh, you know, unfortunately, you're going to see a significant escalation kind of looking out into the future, particularly if you see things like the military attempt to organize these fraudulent elections. And if you do see some countries try to, you know, provide support to or back those fraudulent uh, election efforts, I think that you could really see a strong escalation of, of violence. I think one important variable to look at is what happens in terms of the overall international response. If you start seeing, for example, more and more states start to have direct dealings with the NUG to provide more support to the very diverse resistance actors across the country, um, that could maybe tilt things a little bit in the favor of uh, the resistance. However, I'd also say that even if you were to see the military lose more ground, you know, military defeat does not translate into democracy tomorrow. I think it really opens up a space where the country can really just start to begin thinking about, you know, what it might be able to do in some sort of a scenario where they did have the opportunity to work on building a new uh, future for the country. There's no guarantee that, you know, all parties are going to be signing up for federal democracy. Some of the EAOs are already drifting in different directions. And you're seeing, I think, some growing fragmentation, uh, particularly as some of the influential external actors like China place more influence on some of the EAOs and try to push them away from a direction of building more alliances with particularly pro-democracy actors or with the NUG.
So I'd say there's a lot of variables to to keep an eye on here um, that there's you know certainly going to be growing levels of instability, probably lots of violence over the coming year, but that we really shouldn't give up hope. I mean, I think one thing that we have seen over the past 10 years is that you've seen really a lot of actors across Myanmar work to try to find approaches to democracy, uh, approaches to governments that might work for for the country. Um, you have, I think, a huge brain trust of people that have been um, educated in you know, Western countries, other parts of the world who are really hoping and, and struggling for democracy. And you have a lot of people who I think are putting their lives entirely on hold so that they can try to work for a better future, which is not a future under military oppression and under autocracy and under rule by violence, but one which, you know, you know, gives them the freedom that they've been hoping for over the last decade. So I think really the hope for the country lies in its people, you know, very bright, educated people who I think are willing to struggle, willing to do what it takes for the future of the country. And so that's perhaps one reason to be a little bit optimistic. Things in Burma have steadily gone from bad to worse. In 2015, they had their Democratic Party come into power, which led to ethnic tensions, which would lead to the military writing up an anti-democratic constitution, which would lead to a landslide victory, which would lead to an outright coup, which would lead to a brutal and bloody civil war by the looks of it. The Burmese people have suffered tremendously over these last few years, and it may even get worse before it gets better if other countries start playing proxy wars inside Myanmar. After I ran that hypothetical with my writer, she turned the conversation back toward me and asked me the same question. What would I do if I were the leader of the pro-democracy movement? And no matter how hard I thought about it, I couldn't come up with a good solution either. So surrender now would mean simply throwing yourself at the mercy of a hunter who has repeatedly demonstrated just how brutal they are willing to be, whilst also casting away any hope of achieving democracy in Myanmar for this generation. But to fight will almost certainly exacerbate a civil war, one that is in all honesty already beginning, one that is more than likely schism down ethnic lines, ethnic cleansing, or the death of representation, which is worse. It's a question that even now as I ponder it, I can't come up with a good answer for, and I do not envy the people in Myanmar for having to make that decision in real life for themselves. Thank you so much for tuning into the show this week. I remember we said we were going to do a follow-up on Myanmar all the way back in 2020 when the election happened. But every time we went to go do it, something new would happen and we would always wait to see how things unfolded. So the script went back in the desk drawer. Hence why I was so excited to finally get this one out. So as you may or may not seen on our social media this week, we were finally able to announce the project that we've been working on for almost the last year. This project being The Green Line a five-part miniseries on the geopolitics of climate change. It's a subject we've been asked to cover so many times, but there's no way we could ever do it in just one episode or had the manpower to go through all the climate data ourselves. So for almost a year now, we teamed up with a specialty climate change think tank, gathering the data and looking at how countries are preparing for climate change in this decade, not 2050, this decade. Which conflicts are going to be exacerbated and answering questions like, if all major powers are trying to move off oil at the moment, what happens to the countries like Angola, Algeria, and Saudi Arabia, 
who make almost their entire money from oil. When you think about it, countries like Algeria, with the price of oil dropping by 10% since shockwaves throughout their economy, how are they preparing for the transition away from oil? It has been a fascinating series to put together, and we are incredibly excited to finally be releasing it. So we're putting out a new episode of The Green Line every second Monday in the usual red line off weeks, right here in the same feed. So nothing to worry about, you'll get the same amount of red line, but you'll also get five bonus episodes over the next few weeks. So next week, green line, the week after red line, the week after that green line, the week after that red line. Either way, we're pretty excited. If you want to find out more about the project or anything else we're up to at the moment, you can find all of our links and info on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, Discord, and TikTok on the handle at the red line pod. Or if you're keen to follow me on Twitter, I'm on the handle at MikeElliotOz, Oz is in Australia. This show is completely funded by our amazing Patreons, who donate a small amount of money each month to help us keep this show going. And speaking of our amazing Patreons, this episode is dedicated to friend of the show, Mr. Yamato, who is the latest Patreon to sign up as of the time of recording. This show is only possible with the support of listeners like Mr. Yamato, whose funds are the reason we can keep the show going, and we absolutely greatly appreciate it. So this episode on the coup in Myanmar is thanks to you, Mr. Yamato, as weird as that sounds. As usual, here are three book recommendations. The first is Picking Off New Shoots Will Not Stop the Spring by Coco Thet for a collection of first-hand stories about Myanmar's coup and the subsequent rebellions. The second is In the Dragon's Shadow by friend of the show Stephen Strangio for a look at how China plays into this story. And the third is Blood Dreams and Gold, The Changing Face of Burma for a look into the national identity and ideologies of the Burmese nation. I want to say thanks to this week's guests Min Zhao, Ben Strick, Joshua Kalansik, and Jason Tower. Once again, an absolutely amazing panel this week. I also want to thank my staff, Wade McCarr, the producer, Perry Grace, Daniela Zivella, Isaac Gibbs, Andrew Garbery, and Robbie Sutton, our research assistants and writers, Francis Leach, our director of Breaking News, Mark Spencer, our second voiceover artist, Jonah Gunn, our production assistant, Jamie Tanu, our media director, Ross Cramtree, our media advisor, Joe Horth, our audio cleaner, Marissa Rafter, our videographer, and Nick Much, our field correspondent. If you enjoy the show, these people are the reason you enjoy the show. The Red Line will be back in another fortnight, and the Green Line will be airing next week. But until then, thank you for listening, and good night. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Red Line podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money, and not just your own. Stay on top of the latest financial and market news with Yahoo Finance, a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day. You'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world, all in three minutes or less, right after markets close. Check out Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.